Hi there. This is Nathan with A History of Current Events, a podcast where I summarize the important history and key players behind today's headlines. Today we're going to dive right into a topic that has been dominating the news recently, the national debt of the United States and the heated debate over the debt ceiling. So for those of you who didn't realize this, the United States spends a lot of money. We're talking about trillions of dollars in spending on all manner of things, social security, defense, education, you name it. And although it takes in trillions in revenue from taxes, it doesn't make as much money as it spends. And so, just like you and I might borrow money to pay for college, the government borrows money to build schools and predator drones. The United States Treasury sells bonds to all sorts of investors, and we'll talk about who those investors are later, and they use those invested funds to cover the costs that can't be paid for from tax revenue alone. So what's with this whole U.S. debt thing anyway? Why can't the government just spend as much money as it takes in in tax revenue? What exactly is the debt ceiling? And if it's so dangerous to breach it, why is there a debt ceiling to begin with? Well, the federal government being in debt is nothing new. As founding father Alexander Hamilton once said, the United States debt was the price of liberty. America emerged from its war of independence and subsequent nation building with over $75 million of debt, equivalent to about $2 billion in today's dollars. Why? Because the most expensive hobby of government since time immemorial is war. Equipping, feeding, and maintaining a military costs a fortune, and the Continental Congress didn't exactly have the wealth of an empire behind them, like the British did. So they sent representatives like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams to secure loans from foreign countries, like France and the Netherlands. In 1789, Congress established the Treasury Department with its chief architect, Alexander Hamilton, as its secretary. Hamilton believed in a strong, centralized federal government. He pushed Congress to issue bonds to cover the cost of government operations as well as to pay interest on the debt it already owed, and Congress passed assurances that it would always pay out when the time came due. This was all well and good because the American credit rating rose enough to where investors, both domestic and foreign, began to pour their money into the U.S. Treasury as secure and profitable investments and the first national bank was established in 1791. Albert Gallatin, the Treasury Secretary in the Jefferson and Madison administrations, wasn't nearly as keen on the idea of debt as Hamilton was, and he did his best to roll back Hamilton's programs and encourage massive cuts in government spending. The debt began to decrease. Then Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Territory from the French, which wasn't exactly cheap, and soon after that the War of 1812 broke out, and by 1815 the debt had risen another order of magnitude. The debt stayed fairly steady for a while. Then Andrew Jackson became president. Now, Old Hickory was not a fan of such concepts as paper money, debt, or, you know, banks. Banks. 
so he liquidated the National Bank. His abhorrence for debt led him to sell a ton of nationally owned land in the West and veto every spending bill he possibly could, including a bill to establish a national highway system, which he called unconstitutional. The year 1835 saw the national debt paid off in full, and the government ran a surplus, taking in more money than they spent. Though, since he had liquidated the national bank, Jackson had nowhere to stick that money for later, so he distributed it among the states, who began printing money like crazy. People used this influx of cash to buy up land in the West, worsening a real estate bubble, and to counter this, Jackson ordered all land in the West to be bought in gold or silver. Now, most folks don't have a hoard of gold and silver lying around, so they stopped buying land in droves, leading to a price drop that popped the real estate bubble, and this, coupled with the lack of a national bank to regulate monetary policy, led to the longest economic depression in American history. So, you know, that went well. The paid-off debt? That lasted all of a year before America started borrowing again to try and resuscitate the tanked economy. In 1846, the U.S. went to war with Mexico over the American annexation of Texas, racking up more debt in the process, so that by the end of the war, the debt was back up to $63 million. Though that was a decent sum for the time, it was pocket change compared to what would come next. The cost of the American Civil War, in blood and bills, was unprecedented in American history up to that point, costing over $5 billion in direct expenditures, equivalent to $109 billion today, which led the U.S. to completely overhaul its financial system. The first uniform federal currency was printed, largely replacing state-printed bills, and hundreds of millions of dollars in savings bonds were sold. A permanent national banking system was established, and though the union was preserved, the U.S. was now over $2 billion in debt. Compared to the cost of a divided nation or economic depression, however, this debt wasn't seen as the worst outcome, and by the dawn of the 20th century, U.S. finances were generally in good order. In response to a financial panic, the government established the Federal Reserve to oversee the country's banking system and regulate money supply. The debt increased once again as America prepared for its entry into World War I, and without significantly upsetting the economy, the U.S. emerged victorious from that war with $25 billion of debt. By now you must be sensing a pattern. The debt remains pretty stable for a while, with normal government functions, then the U.S. gets involved in a war, and the debt jumps up in order of magnitude. But things go back to normal without much disturbance for the average Joe. And now we can talk about the debt ceiling. You see, the role of the federal government in everyday life grew significantly after the turn of the 20th century, so it was spending more each year, especially as America entered the First World War. Up until 1917, Congress had to authorize every instance of borrowing directly. The Constitution grants them the power of the purse, after all. But 
this was simply becoming impractical and burdensome. So, in order to improve efficiency, while still holding the government fiscally responsible, Congress established the debt ceiling, which put a cap on the cumulative amount the federal government could borrow. The Treasury could sell as many bonds as it needed to fund government operations, so long as it didn't pass that ceiling. Should the United States be obligated to spend more than that limit, the Treasury would have to resort to extraordinary measures to pay government obligations, or else go into default. What happens if the federal government defaults on its loans, you may ask? Well, since this has never happened before, no one is 100% sure, but the fallout would certainly be dire. First of all, the sovereign credit rating of the United States would plummet, which would raise the general cost of borrowing. The value of the dollar would likely fall with massive inflation, and the entire economy would be sent into a tailspin. In other words, the country would be plunged into a recession. So, you know, not good. However, for most of the 20th century, this wasn't really a major threat, as Congress would raise the debt ceiling before federal spending exceeded it with little to no debate. Better to let them borrow a bit than to risk default. More on that later. The 1920s saw budget surpluses and a general reduction of the debt, but then the Great Depression kicked the country in its collective ass. No doubt you've seen the pictures of the tragic poverty that ensued, the endless food lines, the shanty towns, the mother clutching her child while looking forlornly in the distance. Things were bad. In order to alleviate the massive unemployment levels and revitalize the economy, President Franklin D. Roosevelt initiated massive public works programs and strengthened the social safety net, which helped America get back on its feet. Although this increased the deficit and the debt, a new mentality was taking hold in the halls of power in the West, Keynesian economics. The long and short of John Maynard Keynes's theory is that the government should take an active and oftentimes interventionalist role in the economy, spending a lot during times of recession in order to stimulate the economy, and cutting back this spending during times of prosperity. Debt was not the ultimate national curse that Andrew Jackson thought it was. It was just a fact of life. Just as the world recovered from the Depression, it was plunged once again into global conflict. World War II, too fast, too furious. I thought that was clever, at least. Over the course of the Second World War, American defense spending increased 15-fold, with the total expenditures coming out to $323 billion, which would be almost $5 trillion today around two-thirds of which was borrowed through the widespread sale of bonds. 
The U.S. experienced budget surpluses in the wake of the war, but the debt never fell below $250 billion. It just wasn't a priority. As long as the U.S. made its interest payments, the fact that it was in debt wasn't really a problem. The Korean War saw another rise in military spending, and this trend continued throughout the Cold War. Between the Vietnam War and President Lyndon Johnson's new society programs, the U.S. was back up to World War II levels of deficit by the late 1960s. To counter this, a significant tax increase leading up to 1969 saw the last American budget surplus until the end of the century. This didn't last long, of course, since the OPEC-engineered oil shortage in 1973 led to major inflation and high interest rates, and though the country attempted to tighten its belt spending-wise, the deficit still grew. And by 1980, the total federal debt had more than doubled to $914 billion. Now, Ronald Reagan was not a subscriber to Keynesian economics. He believed that the government should take a minimal role in the economy, and the growing national debt was a major issue discussed during his campaign. Yet, despite his expressed desire to eliminate the debt, it more than tripled over the course of his administration, and was now measured in the trillions, thanks in large part to massive Cold War military spending and the war on drugs. Debt became not only a way of life for the country, but for Americans as individuals, as more people became reliant on credit cards and mortgages. All the same, America's seemingly ludicrous spending allowed it to outspend the Soviet Union, driving them bankrupt in their efforts to compete. The Cold War was over. Just as at the end of World War II, America was once again the unquestioned world hegemon. The economy was strong, the government was able to cut spending, and in 1998, the Clinton administration presented the country with its last surplus to date. Though that's not to be confused with the debt being paid off, which it certainly wasn't. It was about this time that the debt ceiling became an issue. While Congress routinely raised the debt ceiling ever since it was established, in 1995, Newt Gingrich, the Republican Speaker of the House, threatened not to allow a debt ceiling increase in an attempt to leverage the Clinton administration to make budget cuts. The president refused, and the government went into shutdown until they agreed on moderate spending cuts and a tax increase. The late 90s surplus didn't last long, though, because following the 9-11 attacks in 2001, defense spending was back up, and America got involved in not one, but two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. On top of that, President Bush established a series of tax cuts, which meant that between the increased spending and decreased revenue, the government deficit and subsequent debt skyrocketed and it has only grown exponentially ever since. The 2008 recession only made matters worse, as the government under the Obama administration was forced to spend even more in order to get the economy back up to snuff. As many of you know, that recuperation took a long time. Despite the necessity of increased spending in order to defibrillate the economy, 
there was considerable resistance on the part of Republicans in Congress to raising the debt ceiling further, as they wanted the government instead to reduce its deficit. In 2011, the Treasury came within two days of exhausting its funds before the ceiling was raised, causing the government's credit rating to drop for the first time since the Depression. And in 2013, the government shut down for 16 days as Republicans leveraged the debt ceiling in an attempt to defund the Affordable Care Act. This time, the Treasury came within one day of exhausting its funds before the debt ceiling was temporarily suspended. The debt ceiling was raised multiple times over the following years, and in 2017, Congress passed a bill extending and later suspending the debt ceiling for over a year. Just when the country was looking like its old self again after the recession, COVID-19 hit, and the American economy took another dive, necessitating more spending, etc., etc. The debt ceiling was suspended once more until July 31st of 2021, when it took effect again at $28.4 trillion. So where are we at with the debt today? Well, the grand total for the U.S. national debt stands at more than $28 trillion. Now, there seems to be a great deal of confusion as to who owns that debt. Many think that China is the largest shareholder, but this is distinctly not the case. In fact, the organization that holds the greatest single share of the debt is the Social Security Administration, at almost $3 trillion. You see... The SSA will oftentimes take in more than it pays out. So rather than stash the extra funds away in a jar, it uses the surplus to buy up treasury securities, which have historically been one of the most secure investments in the world, and redeeming the bonds as needed. In fact, about 80 different government entities, including the Federal Reserve and the Military Retirement Fund, own over $6 trillion of the national debt. As for foreign governments, who collectively own about $7 trillion in U.S. Treasury securities, China is only the second largest holder of American debt at just over a trillion, and they've actually been slowly reducing their holdings, seeing U.S. bonds as less secure than other investments. Japan is actually the largest foreign holder of debt, and following those two are England, Ireland, and Luxembourg. For some reason. Foreign investment in American debt keeps the value of the dollar high, which is good for their exports, and keeps interest rates low in this country, which is good for Americans looking to borrow money for, let's say, a house or a car. The rest of the debt is held by American institutions, such as mutual funds, state and local governments, insurance companies, pension funds, and banks, and individuals like you and me, whose grandmothers bought them small savings bonds for their birthdays in years past. Thanks, Grandma. Between government and private organizations, almost half of all the debt is held in trust for retirement. Because government spending has hit the $28.4 trillion debt ceiling, the debate over raising it has been renewed. Although Congress has always voted to raise or temporarily suspend the debt ceiling in the past, growing partisanship has made this a more and more difficult process, 
with the debt ceiling being used as leverage to push budgetary agendas, and the government going into shutdown for weeks at a time while congressmen scrambled to avoid the worst-case scenario. Congress narrowly passed legislation in early October to suspend the debt ceiling until December 3rd, but that deadline is fast approaching, and another row over the U.S. debt is imminent. The Treasury is already resorting to extraordinary measures to keep some government functions operating. It is worth mentioning that most other countries don't have such a debt ceiling in the first place, given the threat of default, and many congressional Democrats would like to see it eliminated altogether. This is unlikely to pass, but one potential compromise has been proposed by Democratic Representative Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania. Transfer the power of setting the debt ceiling to the Treasury. This bill is based on one proposed back in 2013 by Republican Senator Mitch McConnell and would give the Treasury Secretary the power to adjust the debt ceiling when needed, thus removing the burden from an increasingly partisan Congress and eliminating the ever-looming threat of default. We'll see if this pans out. So that's where things stand today. As always, with brief rundowns such as these, I had to condense and simplify a lot of the story, and I encourage you to do more research on this facet of American history, whether it's Hamilton's role in forging the U.S. financial system, Jackson's distrust of debt, or the current debate over the efficacy of the debt ceiling. If you have any questions about the debt, or would like to hear about the history of another current event, let me know in the comments, or shoot me an email at historyofcurrentevents at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.